Romans 8, 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let me just go ahead and pray for us right on the front end, uh, and then we'll get started, right? Um, Father, we are gathered to um, celebrate Advent, uh, to be together as a church family, but, but namely, Lord, uh, to worship you, for today is your day. Today is the Lord's day. And so, God, we, we, we offer our, our time, our worship, our voices, our hearts, and our minds uh, that we might just encounter you, be, be near to you, uh, and be changed to look more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So they say that our nation hasn't been more divided than it is right now, right? I mean, if you spend any time on the internet, you know that that's true, right? You know that our nation hasn't been more divided than it is right now. There's this huge debate uh, that's really flared up over the last few weeks. People are super opinionated about it. People are being like mean to each other about it. You guys have probably seen it. The debate is... When is it okay to start listening to Christmas music, right? Like that's what everyone's finding about. Like when is it okay to start listening to Christmas music? Let's do let, let's do this. Like how many of you guys are in the uh, it's okay before Thanksgiving, right? Uh, Oscar, I know that about you. Courtney, not surprised, right? It's okay before Thanksgiving. How many of you are like no, not until after Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of where I'm at. I'm more like a you can start Thanksgiving Day, like at, at the Thanksgiving meals when I think it's okay. Um, but regardless of where you land on that spectrum, on that debate, we all kind of agree that we're, we're mostly like in the clear now, right? I don't know, I don't know maybe, maybe some of you guys are like, you're still not sure, right? Like, is anybody waiting longer? Like, like, to, like just anybody? Okay, cool. No, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, look, this is one of the most fascinating things, I think, about this time of year, is that it's the one time of year when, when every, everyone, regardless of creed, regardless of upbringing, we, we just kind of accept that the malls and the shops are going to be playing songs and hymns about the coming of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Why is that? Why do we have this, this regular annual rhythm of celebration uh, around Christmas time? Like, why all the songs? Why the decorations? Why the rituals? Why the get-togethers? If you actually look into the history of all of our beloved Christmas traditions, from the candles to the tree decorating to the gift-giving, all of those things actually echo the hope, peace, love, and joy that the first Christmas brings. That in the arrival of Jesus Christ in the form of a baby, that God has begun his work of pushing back the darkness, 
of mending the broken, of righting every wrong, of reconciling us with himself, with the creator, and making the world whole again, no longer broken, but whole again. And so these weeks leading up to Christmas Day, throughout history, we've been celebrating what has been known uh, throughout church history as the Advent season. And that word Advent simply means arrival, all right? Advent means arrival. And so for Christians, the Advent season is when we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, the world's greatest gift. It's a time we celebrate the fact that Jesus came, he came, God with us. But throughout church history, it's also a time where we recognize the waiting, where we sit in the longing, It's not just a time where we celebrate what God has done, but it's also a time where we long for what God has yet to do, how we look forward with expectant faith for when he will return again. And so if we're doing Advent right, we we wrestle with that tension. It's not just fun and celebration and joy. It's also leaning into the, the, the longing with expectant faith. You know, it's one of the unfortunate things, I think, is how here in the West, like in Western cultures, we've turned Advent into this frenzy that we call like the holiday season or the Christmas season. It's the season that is more driven by consumerism than anything else. I think that's a tragic irony. Right now, I'm not against the exchanging of gifts and things like that, but when it becomes, we become so consumed by consumerism, that's a tragic irony because it's an irony that the season that's supposed to mark the arrival of the one who satisfies our deepest longings somehow leaves us feeling overwhelmed and stressed, busied, alone, without peace. I think the danger is that if we're, not, if we're not careful, if we're not intentional, then the season can create for us this sort of perfect storm of, of busyness that will cause us to, to miss out on the voice of God, to miss out on what God might have to speak to us through this season. And so here's my challenge for you, my challenge for us, this is including myself. My challenge for us is is don't waste this Advent. Don't waste this Advent season. Come on Sundays ready to revisit the cosmic hope, peace, love, joy that Christmas brings. As some of you may have known from from the emails that went out, our team put together an Advent guide to to help ground you in the season during the week. We'll talk more about that later. But together, let's let's just slow down. Let's slow down through this Advent season. Let's slow down on Sundays through this Advent series and take a deep breath and just inhale the promise of a Savior who said that he would return again to make us whole and to make all things new. So we're going to be working through the traditional Advent lineup over the next four Sundays. That's including uh, tonight. Over the next four Sundays. And, And traditionally, the way that we're supposed to look at this in the church calendar is that the first two Sundays 
are more about the longing and waiting and anticipation. And the last two Sundays are more about the joy and celebration, right? And so the Advent lineup for four weeks is tonight we're going to look at hope. Next week, Oscar is going to bring us uh, into peace. Uh, The following week, uh, Brian is going to unpack love for us. Uh, And then on uh, the last Sunday before Christmas, we're going to look at joy. Uh, And then the day after Christmas is a social Sunday, so we'll get like a bonus one where we'll go over faith and kind of talk talk it all together. Now, as you know, typically what we do is we like to to go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We like to take a passage of scripture and a single passage and and kind of unpack it. Uh, Today, we're going to jump around a little bit, but mostly in the book of Romans. And so if you have your Bible uh, or your app, go ahead and open that and turn to Romans chapter 8. And here's our first number point. Our first number point. Our first point number one. Uh, Point number one. We're going to talk about the reality of our hope searching. Let's just acknowledge it, right? Let's acknowledge that we all search for hope. The reality of our hope searching. Read Romans 8, verse 22 to 23 with me. The Apostle Paul's writing, and he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And, and he's saying this after he's been going on about how hard suffering is, about how hard hardship can be in this world. And he just acknowledges, he says, hey, look, we know, <clears throat> we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, which is a really graphic description to say that this is really painful. Like sometimes things really are really hard. And verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, even those of us who are Christians who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Now, what does this say, these two verses? This passage says that every single one of us, every single one of us knows what it's like to, to, to search for hope. Every single one of us knows, can relate to that feeling of what it's like to groan for hope. Even those of us who have the spirit in us, Paul says, even those of us who have the hope of Jesus, the joy of the gospel, there's still a sense where we eagerly look forward to the day that our bodies will no longer give way, the day that we're reunited with our maker when all evil, sin, and death will be no more. You see, hope, hope in the truest sense, in the deepest sense, is part of our common human experience, is it not? We all hope. And if you slow down enough and listen closely enough, you'll notice that we use this language of hope all the time. We'll say it out loud. Sometimes we'll think it. To ourselves, right? Like, I hope it rains again soon. I hope I get that present for Christmas. I hope I get that bonus at the end of the year. I hope that one person or that one family is at that Christmas party. Or I hope that one person or that family is not at that Christmas party. I hope science can save us with an effective vaccine. That's what a lot of people have been saying this year. I hope the government can save us with new policies that I believe in. I hope tomorrow is easier than today. I hope I don't have to have that hard conversation this week. 
I hope I don't get whatever Chris has, right? We use this language of hope all the time. This, the reason that the language of hope is so familiar to us, the reason that it's on our lips, I think it's because we are made in the image of God and hardwired for real hope. And we're always trying to put our hope somewhere. It's just that it hardly ends up being the right thing. You see, every single one of us, regardless if we're Christian or not, every single one of us acknowledges that something is wrong with the reality that we find ourselves in. That something is wrong with the world that we find ourselves in. It just feels broken, right? It feels like things aren't exactly what they should be. It feels like it's not whole. Like there's something missing. With all this suffering, pain, evil, death, injustice, sickness, cancer, you name it. We experience these things at a personal level. We observe them uh, at a, a global level. We know that things are not what they should be. And Romans 8, as we just read, says that all creation groans together. Why is that? Why does creation groan? It's because it waits and longs for its glorious future. It waits and longs for what's missing, for what's not yet. That word groaning actually shows up a handful of times in this chapter, and it means to be in pain, right? It's like when people groan, like, well, when do people groan? They groan when, they, when they're hurt, right? They groan when they maybe break a limb, when they're dying, gasping when they're in labor, when they're in great pain, like that's when groaning happens. That original Greek word for groaning is stenazo, and there's different forms of it that you see all throughout Romans 8. Uh, and that, that Greek word was used around the first century to describe the types of groanings that you would hear in a battlefield. Even the best war movies had the hardest time depicting this kind of groaning. But in a real battlefield, like if you, if you read interviews with veterans or things like that, in a real battlefield, when, when a battle ends and all the noise starts to turn down, the shots and the bangs and the explosions start to fade away, the smoke and dust starts to clear out, war veterans will talk about how one of the most bone-chilling experiences that uh, that, they, uh, <clears throat> that they go through on the battlefield is, is that moment after the battle when the smoke and dust clears out, when all the noise is gone, and all you hear left is the groaning of people who are left lying there. Just the groaning of people who are left just laying on the ground, wounded, bleeding out. It's a type of groaning that's a groaning for help. It's a groan for relief. It's a groan for hope. You see, in Romans 8, this is that kind of groan. Romans 8 tells us that we live 
currently in a time of groaning. Because we know that hope is available through Jesus Christ, but it's not fully here yet. He's going to come back. And so we groan. Creation groans. Creation itself groans because it's giving way to decay and destruction. Scientists, they call this the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us that the universe that we live in is actually breaking down rather than accelerating, right? It's one of the um, apologetic arguments against macroevolution, the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, it's why our bodies break down the older we get, right? I just turned 38. I know all about that, right? I can no longer just enjoy dessert. I now have to feel it around me for a few days, right? Even the freshly cut Christmas tree with its beautiful aroma that fills the room, fills up the whole house, reminds us that we can't place our hope in created things. Because the beauty of that tree, it has a shelf life. It's green color, its aroma will fade. Eventually you'll find yourself sometime end of December, early January, like dragging out a dead tree while all its pine needles, beautiful, once beautiful pine needles, end up like all over your yard. We can't place our hope in created things. You see, one of the things I love about the scriptures is how you find places like, like right here in Romans, in Romans 8. And, and all throughout the Bible where it's just, the scriptures are just totally honest about how we suffer. It's honest about how we long. It's honest about how even in the Christian life, we groan and we long for hope. We wait for it. The Bible doesn't try to hide the fact that life is hard and that the world is broken and that humanity is a mess, even for Christians. It owns that fact. And like the rest of Romans 8, the scriptures invites us to just pray and trust God in the middle of that mess. Karl Marx was often, often uh, he often accused religion of, he called it the opiate of the masses. He said religion is the opiate of the masses, that he was comparing it to a drug that was that, that just would distract us from the pains of the world. That's, that was his view of religion. It's like a drug that people turn to if they need to be distracted by the, the pains and longings of the world. But verses like these in Romans 8 show us that the gospel isn't a distraction from the pain. No, it acknowledges the pain. It acknowledges that which we hope for and shows us that real hope never dies. That real hope will be realized. Jesus is coming back. That's the good news of Christmas. That God is with us. God came to be with us. He's with us now, and to the fullest extent, he'll be with us again. And we know that he's going to be good on his promise to come again, because he was good on his promise the first time. History has proven this. Now, before we get to the good news of Christmas, let's turn the corner and talk about why things got this way. Why is it that we find ourselves in a world where we groan? What exactly is it that is wrong with this world? Why is it that we find ourselves searching for hope? And so number two, we look at the reason for our hope searching. 
the reason for our hope searching. Why do we search for hope? If you were to stop, let's just say five people on the street this week and ask them what they think of life in this world, you'll probably get a whole host of answers, right? Like some will talk about things that they're thankful for, blessings of this world. Others will talk about difficulties and tragedies. But the reality is that there's this real tension, right? On the one hand, on the one hand, we have this sense that there are good things in this world, good things that anybody can enjoy, right? You You don't have to have a personal relationship with God to see and acknowledge the beauty of a sunset or to feel the warmth of a loved one. We we see that there are things in this world that are good, that life is a gift, and that it's full of of blessings of things like, like, like family and relationships and music and art, get togethers, parties, wood fire pizza. But on the other hand, we also have this sense that something's gone wrong. And so we ask the question, why is this world the way that it is? Why is there that tension? After all the centuries we've been around, after all our human progress, after all our innovations and technology, why is it that our souls always groan for something truer, for something bigger, for something better, for something more beautiful, for something just more? Why is that? And scripture gives us the answer at the very beginning by telling the story of how we came to be and what went wrong. In Genesis 1 and 2, the first couple chapters of the Bible, we read about how God intended the world to be. And it says that God created the world and intended it to be his beautiful, good design, right? When God all made all creation, he called it what? Good when he spun the stars into existence, when he fashioned the tiniest cells and and quarks that make up every creature and everything, when he formed mankind from the dust of the ground, every step of the way, he stepped back, looked at it, and said, good, this is good. And we read about how he made human beings, how he made us in his image, and how he invited us into his great mission and purpose for his world, to bring goodness and blessings of his sovereign reign to the ends of the earth. And he put humanity's first parents, Adam and Eve, he put them in a garden and told them to just enjoy it. He said, enjoy the garden, enjoy the fruits, Work and enjoy your work. Till the ground. Expand the borders of the garden to the ends of the earth. This is the good life that we all were created for. But then in Genesis 3, something awful happens. What happened? Sin. In spite of the blessings, in spite of the goodness, Adam and Eve sinned. We call this the fall of humanity. Sin entered the world when our first parents chose to doubt the goodness of God's rule over creation and decided to try and work against it. Creatures deciding to live their lives their own way without a relationship with the creator. And that is how we define what sin is. 
sin is essentially doubting what God reveals in his word and choosing to live our lives without him, without that relationship. Figuratively taking God off his throne and putting ourselves in that place. And when Adam and Eve did that, when that first happened, when sin entered the world, things just spiraled, didn't they? Things spiraled. The order of creation gets flipped on its head. And ever since then, every single person who has been born afterwards, except for Jesus, every single born afterwards has been born into sin with a nature of sin and choices that we make in sin. Sins of commission where we do things that we shouldn't do. Sins of omission where we don't do the good, holy, and righteous things that we should do. And we cannot escape the effects of sin apart from Christ. We can't escape it. We can't escape the brokenness of this world. We can't escape the guilt and punishment of our sin. Creation is both messed up out there and in here. Sin has wreaked havoc both out there and in here. We are both sufferers because of sin and sinners because of our sin. And because of this, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have missed the mark. That's what sin means. We've missed the mark of God's good intended purpose for us. Because of sin nature, we end up missing the whole point of life. We don't just miss the bullseye. We miss the whole target. Instead of living for and aiming for the glory of God, we find ourselves living for and aiming for the glory of self. And that's the root of all sin. And because of that, because of that rebellious nature of sin, God will not tolerate it. He won't. He'll make sure it's destroyed. He'll make sure it doesn't exist in his new heavens and new earth. He won't tolerate sin. Now, that might sound mean to some of us, but I want you to consider how God is good. He's the standard of good. He's perfectly holy in every way. And it is his holiness, his perfect holiness, how he is the ultimate uh, uh, in his nature and in his character, he's the very uh, just embodiment of, of truth and goodness and beauty. It's because of that in his holiness that, that causes him to be angry with sin and to want to destroy it. Paul Tripp helps us understand this, uh, helps us make sense of this for, for those of us where this might sound unsettling. He, he says you could argue that... God's anger is the hope of the universe. If God weren't angry about sin, there would have been no cross and no hope of salvation for sinners. And you would not want to live in a world where the one ruling the world was incapable of righteous anger. God's anger with sin is a product of his holiness. 
What is the reason? What is the reason for our hope searching? Because sin has entered our world. Because sin has entered our hearts. Think, Michael. And so we search for a remedy. We search for a remedy. This is point number three. We'll close here. The remedy for our hope searching. Uh, Wow, that felt good. I could like hear my voice going. (laughs) Level up. All right. Point number three, the remedy for our hope searching. You see, the law of God... The perfect law of God puts us on the stand, and we are guilty with no defense. And God, again, he can't give us a break because his justice is perfect. Instead, he does something so much better. Instead of compromising his justice in order to show us mercy, he actually demonstrates his justice while showing mercy. How does he do that? How does he do that? Through the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, because he was born in a manger, because he took on human flesh, because he was 100% man, although he was also 100% God, he was still fully man. And as a man, he lived a perfect life, the only perfect life, untouched and uncorrupted by sin, which made his payment on the cross the only worthy penalty, the only just penalty, the only fair penalty to absolve us of sin. You see, Jesus suffered the penalty on the cross because of sinners like you and me. The penalty that we owed, he paid. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, because we sin by nature and choice, because we sin, the wages we've earned for our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, Jesus satisfied holy justice on the cross, and at the same time, he secured forgiveness. He satisfied justice and secured forgiveness for anyone and everyone who would believe in him. Romans 5 tells us that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope, there's that word, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, this this rejoicing, this rejoicing in the glory of God, that's what carries us through our longings. That's what carries us through our sufferings and our groanings. It can, can carry us through our hard times. Why? It's because in Jesus, we have a restored relationship with God. We have peace with God. That's what it's called here in Romans 5. Peace with God. 
You see, and that's the whole point of the Christian gospel. That's the remedy that we need for the longing that we feel. It can only be filled by peace with God, by being reconciled with our creator. You see, in the garden, our first parents, they had a perfect relationship with God. I want you to imagine what that must have been like, to have a perfect, unfiltered, unadulterated relationship with God, to where God, in some mysterious way, he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. The God who made you. There was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was everything, including you. And the God who made all that to be, he knows your name. He calls it out. He walks with you in the garden. He calls your work good. He calls the fact that you're alone not good, and so he makes a partner for you. And he tells you, have fun, flourish, multiply, till the ground, expand this garden, enjoy whatever, whatever you want, just not from that one tree. Show me that you can live under my sovereign rule. Trust my truth, my goodness, the beauty of what it means to know me and relate to me. In all his glory, God was there with them. Imagine the voice of the Lord being able to speak to them in the same way that I'm speaking to you right now. That relationship between God and man was severed by sin. And the whole book, the whole scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation is how we get back to that. Every point along the way. In the covenant with Abraham, how's Abraham described? He's a friend of God. He's a friend of God. And in, in, in the covenant with, 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 with Moses, right? Like, like God's, God delivered the people, and he's going to lead them into the promised land. And he says, go on ahead. You go on ahead, right? Like, I'll be over here, Moses. Just go on and take the people ahead. And Moses is like, are you kidding me? You're, you're our God. What, what hope is there, what future is there if you're not with us? With David, in the midst of his sin, in the midst of his, his imperfect ruling as Israel's king, he says in a song that he wrote, gushing from his heart, that the one thing, the one thing that he wants to, that he wants more than anything else the one thing that he desires, the one thing that he asks for is to dwell in the house of the Lord and inquire at his temple. In the New Testament, Jesus reconciles enemy with enemy. We're told that we're given the ministry of reconciliation. In the book of Revelation, which we're going through as a church right now, we're told at the very end that God will be with us again. That's the whole point of the book. The whole book is about how to get back to that, that severed relationship, reconciled with God, peace with God, as Romans 5 says. Our hope is in 
the glory of God, to see it cover the earth as waters cover the sea, and to savor it. To savor it and to enjoy it with our Creator. And look, that's how we begin this Advent season. We begin this Advent season by by feeling the deep longing, the deep restlessness that we all have for the glory of God. We groan because we're starved for the glory of God. And you might be like, wait, hold on. Hold on. Like, you're telling me that I'm supposed to feel restless, right? Like, I'm supposed to feel dissatisfied. I'm supposed to feel restless. I'm supposed to long and groan. Like, doesn't the Bible tell us to be content? And yes, it does. The Bible tells us to be content. But where Paul famously says that in in Philippians 4 comes right on the heels of Philippians 3, where he talked about the very real suffering that he had to endure and how he had to learn how to press forward, press forward in hope, the same way that uh, like an athlete presses forward towards the finish line. You see, restlessness in the Bible, biblical restlessness, sanctified restlessness, is not the kind of restlessness where, like, you're feeling anxious and restless because you don't trust God. No. Sanctified restlessness, holy restlessness, is a passion, a passion for our yet-to-be-realized future with the glory of God. It's where we align our identities and our thoughts, our actions, our goals, our behavior with that glorious future. It's about having this attitude where you will be never settled with just right now. Yes, enjoy the gifts. Yes, enjoy the gatherings, but don't miss the hopefulness of the human heart a hopefulness that can only be met and only be satisfied by the glory of the king, the glory of the king who exchanged his throne in heaven for a cradle in a manger so that he could one day walk as a man to the cross for us. This is how we sit on hope at the beginning of the Advent season. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.